0: On one hand, uh, medicine is really inspiring because you see the full range of our capabilities in medical school. And then there's a lot of things that like, are deeply disillusioning because you see the full range of our fallibilities and everything that doesn't work. C-section rates in our country vary from 7% to 70% at the hospital level. So it's a full order of magnitude. And what that means is the biggest risk factor for getting a C-section is not a person's personal preferences or risks, but which hospital they go to.
1: I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, Childbirth Advocate, and Postpartum Support Specialist. And I'm Tresha Ludwig, Certified Nurse Midwife and International
2: Board-Certified Lactation Consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the
1: myths and get down to birth.
2: Dr. Neil Shaw, an obstetrician and professor at Harvard Medical School, is dedicated to improving maternity care in the United States. Think part scientist, part sociologist, and you'll see how his work in maternity care has made him a globally recognized expert in tackling one of the biggest challenges for women giving birth today, the widely variable and sometimes extreme cesarean rate across the nation. Today, Dr. Shaw talks to us about one of the simplest yet most effective solutions for improving birth outcomes in the hospital-based maternity system. So, Neil, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We're very excited to hear about the work that you're doing in maternity care. Um, To begin, we'd really like to know about your experience in obstetric school and what you learned from that and how that experience influenced the work you do today.
0: Sure. First of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Thank you for being enterprising and creating this podcast. I hope a lot of people listen to it, and I hope that it makes them think about how we can have a better maternal health system and, you know, just what that means for us and what that means for society and humanity in general. So we'll just start there. Let's lay out some ambitions for your podcast.
2: Yeah,
0: I
1: love it. That is the intention of it.
0: That's a good one.
1: Very much. That's why we're here.
0: (laughs) Yep. Uh, Well, I mean, uh, I guess um, maybe a good place to start is that... uh, Obstetric school is a thing that probably never ends, but I chose to be an obstetrician at the 11th hour, um, maybe the 13th hour, like in, in medical school. It was a thing I never thought I was going to do. So uh, you can pick the order of rotations in medical school. And I chose to do ob first to get it over with because it was the one thing I was clearly never going to do. So may as well, you know, get it done with. Uh, and then, you know, it turns out... Um,
2: you kind of liked it. Yeah,
0: well, babies being delivered, uh, getting to introduce a family to their newest member, like you have to have no soul to not think that's cool, right?
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so
0: there's no existential crisis in the middle of the night if you're taking care of people in labor. Um, so that was cool. But then I ended up becoming like pretty enthusiastic about everything. Uh, I had a hard time choosing what to do. And and then uh, left medical school, actually, for a little while. Uh, after finishing all my rotations, uh, I found that uh, on one hand, uh, medicine is really inspiring because you see the full range of our capabilities in medical school, and it's a lot like TV. And then there's a lot of things that like, are deeply disillusioning because you see the full range of our fallibilities and everything that doesn't work. Um, so, I mean, I mean, this is a long story, which I'll, I'll make short, but I left medical school, ended up working in politics, ended up um, going to school for public policy, I ended up uh, starting a nonprofit that was working on affordability of healthcare. And uh, after all that wound my way back to this, um, and it, it was for a whole set of reasons, uh, including the fact that I couldn't choose what to do. And um, I liked the fact that OBGYNs do primary care, and they do surgery, and they deliver babies. Um, I liked that in the prenatal clinic, uh, you see people like 14 times in nine months and really get to know them during a critical period in their lives. And it's sort of my window into the American way of life. I liked how the people that went into the field care about social justice. It's not that general surgeons don't. It's just that when you do women's health, you have to wear it on your sleeve in a different way. And I didn't even know that's what I liked about them. I just liked the people that went into it. And then it turned out that's probably what I liked about them. The only thing really holding me up was that, you know, there weren't a lot of men in the field. And so I wasn't sure if I wanted to do that. And then it turns out my wife is an aerospace engineer at MIT, and she's been one of the very few women. In her field for a long time and told me to suck it up. So I did. <laughs> and uh, here I am. And so, but, but all that's to say is I think my for my whole career, which now, uh, you know, it's been well over a decade, maybe a decade and a half since all that decision making, um, I've not been a traditional OBGYN trainee.
2: So tell us what's happening today in your work and what you, now that you are out there doing it, um, what you're finding because. We know from the little bit that we know about you that you're taking a different approach than most OBs and really trying to help the maternity care system find a new and better path.
0: Sure. So yeah, I'm a practicing OB-GYN uh, at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. So what that means for me in the pre-pandemic days, it meant I had a full day of clinic every week. Uh, and then I spent time on the labor floor. Now, um, that uh, we've needed more capacity on the hospital side. I'm spending more time just on labor and delivery uh, at least once a week, sometimes more often than that. The rest of the time, I direct a research and social impact program at Harvard. The vision statement is a world in which every person can choose to grow their family with dignity. Um, And that frame is intentional. It doesn't have the word maternal health. It doesn't have the word childbirth even. Um, And it's premised on this idea that um, well, in every humanitarian disaster, whether it's a pandemic, a war, weather events like a hurricane, uh, maternal health suffers disproportionately. And um, it's partially because of the direct impact of the disaster, but mostly because of the indirect ways that services gets, get disrupted and uh, the well-being of birthing people aren't, isn't prioritized. And in many ways, I think the well-being of people giving birth is a bellwether for the well-being of all of us. And that just requires a much wider frame than childbirth, because childbirth isn't just a transient episode in the lives of some people, it's the foundational episode in the lives of all people. And we needed an approach that took into account that not only is that the case, but it's a function of keeping people safe within the four walls of the hospital, but also making sure that people are well supported in the communities where they live their lives. Uh, And also recognizing that it's a gender equity issue, it's a racial justice issue, and it's also a generational justice issue. Um, In our country right now, uh, there's a sense that opportunity is eroding for people. And one of the leading indicators that is quantitative and verifiable is that an American today is 50% more likely to die in childbirth than her own mother was, and three Mm -hmm. to four times more likely to die if she's Black
2: and one of the statistics that uh, I, I saw online in something that you quoted was what caught my eye when you said the c-section rate in one generation has gone up 500%. so in
0: the early 1970s the c-section rate in our country mm-hmm. was 5% and now it's over 32% and if you were to pick three statistics to describe the generational change in childbirth is that over that time we've intervened in childbirth 500% more with major abdominal surgery and for that term infants are 0% better off, and moms are 50% more likely to die.
1: And we're the only industrialized nation where it has gotten worse over these decades. Every single other industrialized nation has improved significantly over the same period. Yeah, It's remarkable. So it's interesting that you pointed out the whole difference in not only the generational, but in women of color, Black women, ethnicity. It just, the obvious fact is this has nothing to do with women's bodies. It has to do with culture, society. So what I'd love to ask you is, you never had the intention initially of going into this field. You must have, of course, like any of us, you must have gone into it with certain assumptions. And I would love to know, because clearly you're in the minority of of obstetricians who are forging this path right now. And I'd love to know what assumptions you had that, were just shattered early on, where you just recognized these problems. And you must have started to recognize you are different from a lot of your peers, probably, or else we wouldn't be facing the problems that we're having right now.
0: I mean, those are good questions. I, I think that uh, social progress and the business of improving systems is not about individuals. And I think you know, part of the difference is that I have the privilege of being able to question my assumptions. But generally speaking, most of us are products of the systems that we work in. There's a quote that I love um, from a Dartmouth professor named Paul Bettelden, which is that every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. I mean, I guess uh, pretty early on, I mean, my whole idea of medicine was based on TV when I went to medical school. And so I think right away, uh, the fact that um, doctors are not omniscient that the healthcare system is highly imperfect. And actually what really motivated me at the beginning was that um, realizing that there's two forms of expertise in any healthcare interaction. First of all, healthcare is a team sport, meaning it's a partnership between somebody who needs care and somebody who's providing it. And um, there's technical knowledge, which is one form of expertise. And then there's lived experience, which is another form of expertise and that they're complementary, and that both count equally. But our system isn't designed to attend to people's lived experience very well. Um, Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's something that we seem to have gotten backwards throughout healthcare that matters disproportionately in childbirth, which is that we, in our sharp focus on mortality and safety, we forget that people have goals other than emerging unscathed from the process. Mm -hmm.
1: Our first podcast episode is called, is a healthy mom and baby all that matters? Yeah. Because it's the most important thing, we all agree, but by no means is it all that matters in a good birth outcome. Because the assumption with the prevalence of unnecessary cesareans is like, well, let's not take any chances, let's just do a cesarean. Let's not take any chances, let's just induce you. I think that's very misleading because that is far more likely to result in a, an adverse outcome. So it's a little deceptive, isn't it? And I feel like that argument implies or asserts, like, I don't want to take any chances. I just want a good outcome here. But it's, the argument really says, if you really are after nothing but a good outcome, nothing but the healthy mom and baby at the end, is a 50% cesarean rate really going to get you that outcome? And statistically, the answer is no. Isn't the implication part of what's complicating this whole thing societally? Well, there's a
0: couple things that I think make it hard. One is that, um, let's take the C-section rate example. There's no counterfactual. So what that means is like when I do a C-section, I'm always right. The baby comes out looking perfect with high APGAR scores. I think, well, it's a good thing I did a C-section. And if the baby comes out blue and lackluster with low APGAR scores, I'm like, well, see, I should have done a C-section. So it's pretty good to be me because I'm always right. Um, And there's like pretty much like confirmation bias all the way through. Um, I think that's part of it. I think the other thing is that most of the current system grew up based on historical roots. So not that long ago at the turn of the 20th century, a lot of people died in childbirth. Like it's true maternal mortality is going up. But first we should recognize that it's the canary in the coal mine of a much deeper and wider problem. Because for every death, there are tens of thousands of people who suffer from undertreated illnesses, economic disempowerment, social isolation, everything else that's been tagged on to motherhood in uh, you know the year 2020 in America. But death is relatively rare still in 2020. A lot of the current system grew up around that fear where um, you know, when chloroform became a thing and twilight sleep became a thing, uh, there is a sort of tension between people's comfort and their control over the process. And people in the, you know, mid 20th century chose comfort over control. And it, yeah, it just sort of led to the system where we uh, attend to your safety first, and then we treat dignity as a secondary luxury. Mm-hmm. And now we're starting to learn, especially as we examine these deaths and these injuries that probably Attending to your dignity first is a way of making you safe.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like, this is the position I want to give birth in. Yeah. And the mother will almost invariably choose a safer position than what she will likely be placed into in a traditional hospital.
0: Well, that's for sure. I mean, the only reason we give birth on our backs are uh, because of the way anesthesia works combined with what's convenient for the person doing the delivery.
2: Precisely. (laughs) Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared any time during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. I wanna get into a little bit about the variance in C-section rate from institution to institution and what you've seen in some of your work about why that might be. We know that some hospitals have a C-section rate of over 50% and others have a C-section rate under 15%. Um, So how is there such a discrepancy
0: Sure. Um, Maybe just the level set. Yeah. C-section rates in our country vary from 7% to 70% at the hospital level. So it's a full order of magnitude. Uh, There's no other healthcare service that varies that much. And then when you account for the risk of people, which there's various ways of doing that, but you actually see more variation, not less. What that means is the biggest risk factor for getting a C-section is not a person's personal preferences or risks, but which hospital they go to. Now. If you're privileged enough to have the choice and you live like in a major urban area and you've got health insurance that offers choices, that's probably important. A lot of people don't have that choice. That's worth Mm -hmm. mentioning, both because uh, 80% of the landmass of the United States is rural and one in five American families lives in one of those places. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, there's only one hospital and it's three hours away. Uh, Or because their insurance just sort of locks them into a place. I think the other thing that's sort of important to recognize is that c-section rates at the national level, at the hospital level, and at the individual doctor level mean three different things, which people often don't understand. But at the hospital level, a hospital c-section rate is really just telling you something about the quality of labor management. The way to have less c-sections is to manage labor better, which Mm -hmm. means to offer more labor support. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I think C-section rates can tell you reliably is how good a place is at supporting people's labor. Now, the other thing that's complicated is that C-section rate, you can harm people from doing too much too soon and from doing too little too late. Mm-hmm. And most things that we're trying to improve in healthcare, the right answer is zero. If you're going after mortality, you want zero mortality. You've got clarity of what the target is, and it's zero. For C-section rates, the safe C-section rate is not zero. Right. And we don't know what it is because it depends on so many things. Right. Um, and so that's but we
1: know 100%. it's
2: not 70%.
0: It's definitely <laughs> not 70%, yeah.
1: So didn't the World Health Organization do some research on that a few decades ago and find the tipping point was approximately 10% worldwide?
0: The WHO recommended uh, a country-level rate of 10 to 15%. And my team did a research study um, of 194 countries a couple of years ago that just tried to connect the dots between a country-level C-section rate and the country-level infant and maternal mortality rate and saw a difference after 19%. But at the country level, what a C-section rate really tells you is uh, basically how robust the healthcare system is. It's probably a more complicated answer, but it doesn't translate to a hospital should have a 10 to 15% rate necessarily.
1: But... Um... For those nations that can sustain a rate greater than 20% because they have the infrastructure to do so, is there not a footnote there that has to do with the correlation between those high rates and increased maternal mortality? There may
0: be. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that's a little bit of a smoking gun in our country is that uh, most people who give birth have more than one child. And if you have a C-section rate the first time, you have about a 90% chance of getting a C-section the second time. And the first C-section is pretty straightforward, and the second one's a little more complicated. And the more of them you do, the more complicated it gets. And sometimes I'm doing a C-section, and it feels like operating on a melted box of crayons. Scar tissue. Yeah, and sometimes the placenta can get caught up in that tissue. First of all, obstetricians are the only surgeons that cut on the same scar over and over again if you're a different kind of surgeon, if you're like a vascular surgeon or an orthopedic surgeon, and you have to go cut in a place you cut before, that's a bad day in your work week. But for me, that's like Friday, you know, or a Monday, it's like every day. Uh, And so yeah, you can't get surgical complications without doing surgery. And there's one complication in particular that's caused by C-sections called placenta accreta, where the placenta gets caught up in all that scar tissue. Placenta is an organ that only exists in pregnancy. It's a big bag of blood vessels. It gets 25% of everything that the heart pumps. And when that condition occurs, people can bleed a lot and sometimes to death. Mm -hmm. And placenta accreta has become 800 to 1200% more common in the last one to two generations of people. It's a deadly condition. So there is a relationship between C-sections and mortality.
1: Do you try to talk women out of scheduling a C-section if they've already had one? Do you try to encourage a VBAC? What do you do to manage that risk in your practice?
0: I mean, in my personal practice, uh, yeah, I mean, I think part of what's hard is that moms are generally expected to suck it up. Like moms are resilient. So if you've had a C-section the first time, you don't really know what the alternative was. And then you just feel like, well, you know, there are a number of reasons why it may seem sensible. It was confirmation bias. It was safe the first time you got through it. Um, It's scheduled. There's more predictability. And so I I do try to describe some of the statistical risks with any surgery, but including the fact that taking care of a newborn infant is harder when you've got a 10 centimeter incision in your belly. That's going to take weeks to recover from. Um, And uh, for people for whom that's compelling, or for whatever reason they want to labor, they should get the chance to do that.
1: Do you keep track of what your C-section rate is, and are hospitals required to report those numbers?
0: Hospitals are required to report their overall C-section rate numbers to the Joint Commission, increasingly to insurance companies. To the public? Uh, I think...
1: I haven't seen that. Yeah. I've only seen audits. I haven't seen that they... Yeah,
0: so the Joint Commission it. processes an audit system, and I think that there's a few departments of public health that do publish publicly. Um And like the LeapFrog group, there's a few watchdog groups. Uh, Consumer Reports used to do it. U.S. News actually had a whole focus on maternal health where they published C-section rates of a number of hospitals uh, last fall.
1: Are those audited or do they just call the hospital and say, what is your C-section rate? Because the only time I ever saw it, that was how it was conducted and it just didn't seem very credible to me. Yeah,
0: I think, you know, uh, an overall C-section rate actually isn't that meaningful. What's more meaningful is the C-section rate in low-risk people. Uh, Mm -hmm. And um, it's a little bit harder to get at for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. But um, I think most hospitals now have to internally audit at the very least. And many hospitals also report individual rates back to their doctors, including at my hospital. I get a quarterly report. One of the things we started to do recently, actually, is measure nurse-specific C-section rates, Um, because in most of America, you know, it's the RN that's actually managing labor.
2: That's such a good point to look at. I mean, that's such an obvious and good point to look at, but I haven't really heard people talking
1: about that much before.
0: No, because nurses don't bill.
1: So is there a big variance from, do you see a big variance? The nurse that you get,
0: which is basically broulette, uh, influences your odds of getting a C-section up to five-fold, potentially, depending on, yeah. Uh, and, uh, in those cases, those people who are consistently low, it's worth learning from them. What are, mm-hmm. what are they doing? And it, it seems to be that they're supporting labor. They're spending more time at the bedside.
2: So again, it keeps coming back to labor support, consistent and more available labor support.
0: Yeah, it's defining what labor support means. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe maybe this is a little bit of a patch, but it, I mean, it turns out that ninety percent of sentinel events in healthcare are failures of communication and teamwork. Mm-hmm. So whether it's C-section rates or morbidity or mortality, like the leading cause of mortality isn't what's on the death certificate. It's not hemorrhage. Like that's not the cause. That's just what happened. The but right. the difference between people who um, make it through episodes like that and people who don't are. Um, breakdowns of communication and teamwork. markets when people express concern around pain or other things and they're not heard or whatever. Basically, the team that comes together to take care of a person in labor comes together randomly for every person, every time, everywhere in the world. So you can't predict when a person's going to labor and they don't know who's going to be taking care of them. And then that team on its pilot voyage has become high-performing for one of the most important moments of our lives. So we've, we've put um, a lot of time and attention into thinking about how You do that well. Um, And we have a program called Team Birth that basically is focused on enabling effective teamwork and communication in the room.
2: So that's between providers, the team of providers, but also, and more importantly, between the provider and the patient or the client.
0: Yeah, primarily the person giving birth at the center Mm -hmm. of the team. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, at minimum, in most settings, it's an RN and a delivering provider. But it could also include support people doulas um, it turns out every inpatient room in america for the 99 of births that happen in a hospital every room in a hospital has a dry erase whiteboard in it for some reason they're usually small they're in the corner and they're for nurses to talk to themselves they're highly variable in the information that's on them and we spent several years and probably millions of dollars coming up with a solution that ended up becoming a bigger whiteboard and it sits across the mom's head wall we simplified the content and we made it big so that everyone can see it and understand it and it only has four components there's a place where you write down every member of the team starting with the mom herself that's not just so that you know people's names it's so that it's for psychological safety so everybody has a role and they have permission.
2: So, and so the woman feels she can, has a place and a voice to speak up.
0: Yep. Yeah. And also, you know, in places that are very hierarchical, the nurse too, mm-hmm. uh, who's managing all the labor, but may not feel empowered. And mm-hmm. then um, there's a place where you write down the things only the mom can tell you that we call preferences, but can be preferences, symptoms, things that are neither, like how much energy you have to push. Um, there's a place where you write down the plan, like what's happening. And the plan isn't always to do something. Sometimes it's just to monitor and support. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And then uh, there's a place where you write down the next time that team will come back together again and talk. That's it. And that's so that people in labor don't feel like passengers on a plane that's being held on the tarmac without the pilot telling mm-hmm. them what's happening, which is like every person in labor in America. That's like the whole freaking thing. And it turns out that transforms care.
1: It's amazing. Has this has this been implemented across the board somewhere? where is the? Is it a pilot? Where has this been implemented? We
0: ran a trial with tens of thousands of families and hundreds of clinicians across the country in Massachusetts and Oklahoma and Washington. And we found that, uh, first of all, clinicians don't hate it. Even in Tulsa, like over time, um, they feel like they can recover efficiency through better communication. Mm -hmm. They actually enjoy being really aligned with the people they're caring for uh, and the team that they're a part of and that they believe it helps them make better decisions over time. And then the people giving birth, they believe that they have a better understanding of what's happening to them, that they have the role in their care that they want, and that their decisions influenced what happened to them. The more that the huddles and the whiteboard are used, the more likely they are to believe that. So that makes us believe that maybe we've like returned a little dignity to the process, but we've also found that this seems to potentially uh, decrease C-section rates and decrease morbidity rates. Uh, everything from unexpected newborn complications to severe maternal morbidity, maybe even postpartum depression.
2: And I'm sure it significantly increases maternal satisfaction with their birth experience.
0: Yeah, because I think you know a lot of times people think of patient experience as like customer satisfaction, which it's not. It's about dignity, and people's satisfaction depends on their baseline expectations, and our expectations of childbirth are very low. Like we we're talking about, if you walk out with an alive baby, you're like, well, that was fine. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: job well done yeah but
0: no it feels like more meaningful that they're understanding what's happening to them if they have a role if they want Uh, and now we're working on scaling that up and uh, actually seeing if we can use this to improve some of the injustices that we touched on too including racial equity Mm
2: -hmm.
0: where I'm really hoping it helps is with agency because people in labor across the board uh, have limited agency because they're in labor so even if you come in really really well informed and really empowered and really privileged if you're Serena Williams doesn't make a difference if you don't have agency, which some people have more than others, depending on whatever else is going on in our society that doles out power and privilege.
2: It all seems to be coming down to the root thing, the root issue being ability to communicate, to trust that your communication is going to be believed, heard, supported, and further communicated down the line.
0: That's the hope, Tricia. You know, I would say that agency is having your lived experience matter, period. And, uh, you know, there's nothing magical about a whiteboard. It's not a panacea, but it is the excuse to do. I mean, putting a whiteboard in is a sleight of hand because it's not threatening. The whiteboards are already in the room. We just make a bigger, better one,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: whatever. Everything that's on the board are things that people already think they're doing anyway. They might not be doing it reliably for every person every time but it doesn't threaten anybody. Um, but what it does is it creates the excuse for the actual hard work mm-hmm. of uh, teaming, partnering, mm-hmm. supporting, being accountable, all those things.
2: And and when you're speaking of agency, are you're specifically speaking about the woman in labor, yeah. having the agency to express herself.
0: Yes. I'm, I'm recognizing that uh, we're all products of systems. Uh, at mm-hmm. the end of the day, I'm, I'm a, I'm a systems designer. Really. There's, power differentials and dynamics in those rooms mm-hmm. and agency is about empowerment and making sure that a person's lived experience whether it was before they entered the room or what they're feeling in the room is part of the information knowing that you know uh, obstetrics is like as you know like midwifery and uh, all of childbirth the whole enterprise is fraught with uncertainty there's no black or white at 3 a.m if someone's been pushing for three hours and four hours and five you just have to decide what's going to happen. And so you have to make a call. Those are tough things. And Mm -hmm. right now what happens is that people make those calls tacitly in their head based on their technical knowledge and expertise. Uh, But they should make those decisions with all the information that should be available to them in the room, which lives in everybody's brain. The nurse who spent more time at the bedside than anyone else. And then the person who can tell you how much energy they have or whatever Mm -hmm. else they may want to tell you.
2: Or how much desire they have to, that right. goes yeah. along with the energy, how much desire
1: they have to keep going or, or not. Totally. yep. So we've talked a lot about how we can improve conditions for, uh, on the end of the providers, what providers can do differently from the systemic perspective. What can parents do differently?
0: Um, I don't want to put the onus on parents too much any more than I would for the rest of us in society. So I I would, you know, blow that question up and say that we all have a stake in the well-being of people who are giving birth, which means, I mean, we have a literal stake, you know. Birthing people matter to humanity. We can just leave it there. And so we have a responsibility that comes with that stake that's shared. But right now we don't invest in that responsibility. We treat the whole enterprise of childbirth as a cost rather than as an investment. Uh, so that applies to preparing yourself, I guess, if you're a person who's pregnant and, you know, educating yourself to the degree that you're able to uh, within the agency that you have. For example, I mentioned that uh, black people are three to four times more likely to die. In New York City, they're 12 times more likely to die. And that's because
1: they are in New York. Yep, I didn't know that. Yeah. And it's how come?
0: because it's a really racially segregated city. Mm. and there 's a big difference between being on the Upper East Side and uh, you know being in the Bronx mm. uh, in terms of what the hospitals look like, how they 're resourced, and what the communities look like, what housing looks like. Fixing our country starts by helping the most vulnerable because it 's hard enough for that person who has those privileges it 's hard enough it 's not mm-hmm. easy by any means for them, but it you know in our country in the Mississippi Delta region of Arkansas right now we 've got families that live on a couple dollars a day, and have one place to go to, and the providers that take care of them have a totally different lived experience than they do. Uh, And if we really, really, really want to fix it, we've got to fix it for them.
2: One of the points you made in the conversation was about the impact of C-section on postpartum health, because caring for a new baby after having a C-section is is a lot more challenging, and we know that women who have C-sections can have higher rates of postpartum mental illness. So, how do you counsel a woman, and how do you feel about women who want to have um, elective cesarean?
0: I mean, I I think one thing is that whether people want to have a C-section or end up with one, we have to be thoughtful about not invalidating their choices or their experiences. Because, I mean, uh, I get dragged on Twitter like nearly every day. One of my early lessons in talking about decreasing C-section rates was that there are a lot of people who felt their experiences were being invalidated and they didn't yeah. feel seen. And people's birth experiences are very personal and matter to them. Yeah. So and then to be totally honest with you, like I think most people who think they want C-section may not be seeing the full picture. And so there might be an opportunity to like add points of information, but it's not my job to change their mind per se. It's just really to counsel them and then honor their choices. And I I have done elective primary C-sections and I think I've done them for good reasons for people for whom something about their life or their circumstances, their, their baseline mental health and anxiety, their past traumatic history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the world is just not black and white.
1: Mm-hmm. Did you ever study sociology? I mean, what's given you this global perspective, this societal perspective that I, I think is quite uncommon? Is it just who you are or was something in your past what influenced you to have this perspective?
0: I think it's probably a little bit of personality and just being a dilettante. You know, I'm not an economist, but I am an armchair, a lot of things, or sociologist. But I think a little bit is just, um, you know, in my own work, I feel like vision and values is where you start. And that's allowed me to be agnostic about methods. And it's allowed me to really follow my curiosity to start with C-section rates and then realize that C-section rates are really about labor management and labor management is really about supporting people. And supporting people is really about equity. And equity is really about valuing birthing people at the end of the day. So you can't not see that once you start going down that pathway. Mm-hmm. And then if you really want to fix it, you have to go after the roots.
2: If you enjoyed our podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share a favorite episode or two. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at down to Birth Show or contact us and review show notes at DownToBirthShow.com. Please remember this
1: information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself.
0: Just Thank you both for your curiosity, because you both have professional roles yourself and you're providing services directly, but you're also reflecting on how things could be better. And we just need more of that.